Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together experts to discuss current events in historical perspective. My name is Lauren Henry, and I'm here with my co-host, Eric Michael Rhodes. Hi, Lauren. As of this recording on the 24th of April, 2019, former president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, languishes in solitary confinement. It is in the same prison in Khartoum in which he incarcerated political dissidents for years. In 1989, al-Bashir came to power with the help of a military junta. In the 30 years since, Sudanese citizens have suffered growing inequality, political repression, and civil war in the country's west and south. When al-Bashir rewrote the rules to hold on to power late last year and food prices soared, a popular front of reformists began a campaign of protest to force him out of power. A military coup ensued in April, but the struggle to establish a civilian government continues. So what can Sudan's past tell us about current events there? And can it give us clues as to what's to come? Today, we're thrilled to be joined by two senior scholars who will help us understand the history of Sudan leading up to this critical turning point, as well as what to look for in the coming months. In studio, we have Dr. Ahmad Sikenga. Professor Sikenga is a historian at The Ohio State University. His research focuses on urban and socioeconomic history in Africa, specifically Sudan and the neighboring regions, in which he has published several monographs. Thank you so much for being with us today, Professor. Thank you for having me and thank you for organizing this event. And joining us remotely from Chicago is Dr. Kim Searcy. Professor Searcy is an associate professor of history at Loyola University, Chicago, and a specialist on the Sudan. He is currently working on a new book on the history of Islam in Lusophone. Professor Searcy, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So we'll start with current events. How did the protests in Sudan begin? Uh, well, the protests started uh, in December, specifically December 19th. I was in Sudan at that time. And they started in this small town of Adbara, which is about uh, three hours north of Khartoum, the capital. And basically they started uh, a response to uh, rising food prices and uh, cost and as well as inflation, repression and all sorts of things. And then very quickly they spread to other Sudanese towns, especially the capital city of Khartoum. And they started really as a protest for what they dubbed them as bread protests, but in fact very quickly turned into a major political revolution demanding the government to step down and uh, the author of Bashir and the, and the whole regime. And Dr. Searcy, what are the protesters' major criticisms of the now deposed President Omar al-Bashir and, and his regime? The major criticisms are that the government's one that's steeped in nepotism and corruption and then it's a kleptocracy and then there's a, it's a government that has marginalized these regions for example in the west and then in the east and then there's still an ongoing conflict in south Kordofan and then in the blue nile state well that the government seems to be not that keen on quelling or engaging in negotiations with and then so for example um, in January, the protests moved to Darfur, and then the media here in the West has kind of turned a blind eye to Darfur, the situation in Darfur, but then that conflict is still going on. That conflict in South Kordofan is an extension or intertwined with that conflict in Darfur. And so the government uh, of Omar Bashir was saying that, well, 
these protests are organized by individuals that are Darfuri rebels, and then they have the support of Israel, and then the people themselves were saying, no, we need to bring down this racist government, and then Kulabela Darfur, all of us are Darfur, all of us are Darfur. So the major criticism is that it's a, the military regime is, is corrupt, and then it's, and then doesn't really have an investment in the, in the people. This has investment in itself, and and this is evident by the fact that I think last week, where they when they arrested and then placed in Koba prison, Bashir, they discovered that he had all of this large amounts of like foreign money in his possession as well. So that illustrates what the people were alleging against him for a long time, actually. Because I remember when I was a student there, I was a student there like 16 years ago, and then people were saying the same thing. The government's stealing the money, and then there's no investment in the infrastructure, and it came to light this past week. Uh, uh, I should just add uh, that, uh, to the issue of uh, corruption. In 2018, Sudan is ranked uh, number 172 of least corrupt countries out of 175 by Transparency International. Uh, the rate of inflation is 63% and uh, unemployment. Well, actually, in uh, recent days, the they have been discovering that, you know, they've been searching houses of former figures of the regime, and they are discovering these piles of cash in, in trucks as we speak. Uh, so they just the level of corruption is just un, unprecedented. And how did Omar al-Bashir come to power in the first place in 1989? How was this current regime established? Uh, he came to power through a military coup in uh, uh, June 30th, 1989, basically overthrowing a democratically elected government. The coup was backed by the National Islamic Front, which is the Sudanese version of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and immediately moved on to try to what established what they call the cultural project of basically establishing an Islamic state in the Sudan and transforming the Sudanese society completely in every aspect of life. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Sirsi, I know that you've worked on the Muslim Brotherhood in the region. Could you give us a little bit more detail on how these cultural changes came about? The cultural changes began, I think the architect of this is Hassan Turabi, and he, so there's, so Sudan has a long history of these uprisings. So the first one was in 1964, and then second one in 1985, and then Hassan Tarabi, he was a student leader during this time period, Islamist, and then this is when he, his presence became known. And then there's a dichotomy that exists between the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood in Sudan. For example, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt has always been marginalized by the government. But then the Muslim Brotherhood in Sudan has been able to infiltrate all levels of the government as well, the army, and then civil service as well. So with this 1989 coup, the government alliance, the NIF, was part of the army as well. And then people began to believe that, well, Bashir was just a, was the puppet of Turabi. But then in 1999, Bashir actually removed Harabi from, from power as well. The, I think one of the questions was that how much of a role does Islam play as far as the politics of Sudan is concerned? And then the Mahdist revolt illustrates in stark relief the role that Islam played in the politics. And this is 
from 1885 all the way to 1898. So that's the beginning, you can say. You can, you can, you can say that that was the beginning, perhaps, of political Islam in Sudan. But then even before that, even perhaps during a time period of first Turkey, which is from 1821 to 1885, there were revolts staged by individuals that maintained that they were the second coming of Jesus. And then this continued even after Mahdi's death. And then during the time, the second Turkey, which is from 1898 to 1956, the British and then the Egyptians controlled the Sudan. And then three decades into the British rule, there were many people that were maintaining that they were the second coming of Jesus. And then the British were the Dajjal, which was Antichrist. And then they were using religion as a way to galvanize the people. And so there's a long history as well. So the Muslim Brotherhood, perhaps you can say it's an extension of the like the religious activism in the Sudan. The, the, that's uh, definitely true. And I would add also that the earlier tradition is also part of militant Islam, which happened also in West Africa, like you know the jihadist movements in the 19th century, the Usman Damfodio and Al-Haj uh, Omar Tal and so on. Also, equally important, there's also a very strong secular and radical tradition in modern Sudanese history, So it's always been a struggle between these two extremes. And it's also important to uh, add that uh, the Sudanese Islam also reflects the cultural tradition of the country. I mean, before the coming of Islam in Sudan, you had uh, the ancient uh, civilization of Nubia. And you also have three Christian kingdoms that existed in the country just before the arrival of Islam. So the, the way in which uh, Sudanese Islam is, is really shaped by all these cultural traditions as well as Sufi Islam and so on, the most militant form has always been associated with the Muslim Brotherhood and, and the Islamist movement. So for our listeners who are, are less familiar with Sudan's history and want to know more about the, the deeper history, can you give us a, a brief summary of Sudan's colonial past? All right, so um, from... 1885 to 1898, the Nilotic Sudan was under control of the Mahdiya. So the Mahdiya, kind of malarian movement, staged by Ahmed al-Mahdi, and then he's responsible for the overthrow of the Turco-Egyptian forces that have been occupying the Sudan, the Nilotic Sudan, since 1821. This, so they created the Sudanese Mahdi state in 1885. So from 1885, we had the state, right, that was created. And then, as Dr. Sakinga mentioned, the most dynamic form of Islam in Sudan is like Sufism. So Sufism is a mystical aspect of Islam. What the Mahdi did was essentially create this kind of super Sufi order and then outlawed all these other Sufi orders. The Sudanese Mahdi state was conquered by the combined forces of the United Kingdom and Egypt in 1898. And then the UK and Egypt instituted policies in the Sudan that continue to have a long-lasting effect in the Sudan, well, in a contemporary period as well. So, for example, they included these territories of present-day Sudan and South Sudan, and is ruled by a dual colonial mandate, dual colonial government, and is known as the Anglo-Egyptian Condominium, and that lasted from 1899 until 1956. But then Britain was a senior partner in administration, and then Egypt was subordinated to England between 1888 I mean, 1882 and 1956. And so, during most of this colonial period, Sudan was ruled as two Sudans, the north and then the the south as well. Mm -hmm. So the British separated predominantly Muslim and Arabic-speaking north from the multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multilingual south 
And then this separation was is evident in the educational policies. So, for example, the British until 1947 developed a government school system in the north, while Christian missionaries in the in the south were tasked with like this taking care of educational matters in the southern southern part of the Sudan. And then in the north, there was government investment in education and school networks consisted with Egyptian schools, missionary schools, community schools, and Sudanese private schools in the south. The schools were established by the Anglican Church Missionary Society. Two things. Uh, the um, Sudan colonial history is quite unique. I mean, you, this is a country that experienced two different colonial eras. The first one was uh, in the 19th century, which is uh, what they call Turco-Egyptian or Ottoman. And then you have the, the, the European colonial rule in the 20th century is ruled by two, two powers, you know, Egypt and Britain, which is quite unique. Uh, but I think the legacy of the first imperial period was the incorporation of the present-day territories of South Sudan. Uh, as you know, the Ottoman Empire was trying to expand in East Africa along the, uh, the, the Red Sea region and so forth. And uh, one of the legacies was the opening of that region to international trade, and, but most important, the slave trade. And that had a long-lasting legacy in Sudanese history. Thousands of people from the present-day southern Sudan, the Upper Blue Nile, uh, the, you know, the, the southwestern part of Sudan, were taken as captives, sent to Egypt or used locally. During the uh, second period, the Anglo-Egyptian period, uh, it also created this kind of uneven development. Uh, economic resources, investment, and so on were concentrated in the central and parts of the country. And this is a legacy that the post-colonial governments uh, in the Sudan did not address. And it continued the same pattern of marginalization, which really contributed to the current conflicts, in, you know, in, in, first in South Sudan, in Darfur, in the Upper Blue Nile, and, and so forth. So how did these regional divisions lead to conflict in the post-colonial period? There's a, uh, I'm sure Dr. Sikang is familiar with this book called A Black Book. Yes. That book? Yes, yes. Okay, so then it was, I think it came out, I remember reading it, it was in 1999 or 2000. Mm. Mm. So initially people didn't really know who published it, but then it came out that it was the Justice and Equality Movement. Yes. group that was in Darfur. And so they said, they wrote some things, and then scholars have done some research, and then the things that they wrote concerning the divisions resonate. So, for example, they noted that the British placed in positions of power and authority during a time period when during this Anglo-Egyptian condominium. So this is during the Anglo-Egyptian condominium from 1899 to 1956. So the British placed positions of power and authority. Northern Riverine people, specifically the Shegia, Jalin, and the Danagla, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Those groups continue to wield power and influence in the contemporary Sudan. So, for example, Bashir, he's a member of he's a Jali. And then they didn't invest in these outlying regions, known as like Alim, right? So, such as Darfur, and then the east, and of course the south as well. So, the British created a social hierarchy in the Sudan, and then that continues to exist. So it resulted in distrust, fear, and conflict between the various Sudanese people. So just kind of just divide and rule policy that separated southern Sudanese provinces from the rest of the country. There was no investment in the western part of Sudan, relatively little investment in the eastern part of Sudan as well. So this is a reason for these, these conflicts in that, those regions. 
as well. So you can argue, make an argument that an extension of colonial policy. And especially, in the, therefore, more recently, after the conclusion of the CPA, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement between the Sudan's People's Liberation Army and the Sudanese government, the approach that the, the Sudan government adopted, as well as the international community, is to focus on uh, resolving the issue between the central government and the south and ignoring the other region. That's actually what this armed movement in Darfur is that, as well as in the Nuba Mountains and the Upper Blue Nile, that they felt that they have been completely ignored and now the government is making a deal with the South alone. The International Criminal Court has indicted Omar al-Bashir for genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. Can you tell us a bit of the background behind these charges? Well, uh, the war in Darfur, especially, the government created this tribal militias called the Janjaweed and basically unleashed them on the civilian population. Well, basically, the, the conflict in Darfur I mean, has deep roots. There is tension between the pastoralist groups as well as the sedentaries. And the sedentaries mainly happen to be the, uh, the local people, the four uh, non-Arabic-speaking people who own land and so on. So, so historically, there have been this conflict between the pastoralists and the sedentaries. But these conflicts were uh, mostly resolved through local mechanisms for conflict resolutions, uh, tribal chiefs and so on. Well, what the government did is basically arming these militias. And actually, some of them are now in Khartoum, they just changed the name, calling them Rapid Deployment Forces, uh, who are now actually now roaming in the streets of Khartoum. And the result of that was uh, a massive uh, genocide in which, it's, by estimates, uh, I mean, the United Nations described it as uh, the worst humanitarian uh, uh, crisis. Uh, estimated at least 300,000 people were killed and millions were displaced in the neighboring countries. So and that's the background of what eventually led to uh, the, 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 the indictment by the, uh, the International Criminal Court. And what, what was the time period for this? I think it was 2008, 2009, when the, the indictment happened. Right, but then the, the Arab League doesn't recognize that. Whether the Organization of African Unity. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask, what has been the response to this indictment, both uh, by al-Bashir, by the regional community, the international community? Basically, they ignored it. I mean, uh, they, uh, uh, Bashir is able to travel freely to uh, the uh, Arab League summit as well as the African Union summit. The only time was uh, there was an attempt when he was in South Africa, uh, which did not succeed. So basically, and actually, I mean, you could see that even now the African Union was also trying to play a very dubious role in the current crisis in terms of, we will talk about that later, but in terms of uh, supporting the current military council. Protesters are demanding uh, immediate, you know, hand of power to, to, to civilians. Right, so then the outcome may, I mean, it's like, it doesn't seem that, that uh, those indictments are going to have any kind of resonance for uh, him being brought to the, the Prague or so. So because yeah. so some scholars were writing that the reason why he held on for such a long time in the midst of these protests, because in the protests in the past, for example, in 1964, the Abud was able to voluntarily step down from power after five days of protests. And, mm-hmm. then, and then same, I mean, Jafar Numeri didn't wait three or four months. I mean, he was out of the country, but then 
some people, some scholars writing about Bashir were noting that the reason why he jealously holding on to power for such a long time period in the midst of these protests was because he was afraid of being arrested due to these war crimes. However, uh, it doesn't seem that there's going to be any kind of manifestation or he's going to be brought to trial for these. That's just my opinion. Mm. Yeah, I think, and then I think the last few days, uh, members of the military council, you know, vowed that they are not going to hand him over. But he, at the same time, he committed so many cr- other crimes that if, if if he could be tried in 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 the country, if 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 things uh, really were carried through. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Susi, you mentioned these popular protests in the past, and Dr. Sakenga, I believe you alluded to them as well. Mm. What has been the role of popular protest in political change in Sudan's history? They've had a long history of these popular protests, and then uh, what was really interesting is that I remember I was in I was in Egypt in 2013, and the Egyptians were beside themselves with joy because they were just boasting about how they were the only country in the Arab world that was able to overthrow a military regime with popular protests using popular protests. And so I had to tell them that this is not the case. There's several case. There's two occasions where the Sudanese did the same as well. So then they overthrew the they overthrew the, the military regime in 1964, and then there was there was a democratically there was parliamentary elections, and there's a democratic government that sued. And then in, again in 1985 as well. So this is when Saad Mahdi became the, the prime minister, the president, the head of state. 1985. So uh, he didn't rule that long, but then it was a democratically elected government. Then the army stepped in and took over power in 89. This one was the shitter taken over power in 1989. There's a, there's a long history. And then they've had to, uh, I think the background concerning those was like a, a major issue that was the driving force for these popular uh, overthrows of, of the military regimes was that there was a war, there were wars waging in the South during that time period. And so people were calling for the end to these wars. And then, so economy played a role as well, but then the war, like those civil wars, the first civil war was from 1955 to 1972, and then the second one was 83 to 2005 as well. So I think, I think that played, those were major issues. The economy was important, but then the, the desire to end those wars, I think. You know, these popular protests were in 1964 or 1985. They were really built on a long tradition of labor organizations, uh, trade union movement, which dates back to the 1940s. And in that regard, I think this, what happened in Sudan really reflects more of an African pattern because, uh, as we know, the post-war period in Africa was a time of labor arrest across the continent from Senegal to Mombasa to Lagos, Nigeria. And these movement protests were spearheaded by transportation workers, railway workers, dock workers, and so on. And in the Sudanese case, uh, uh, they started in, ironically, the city of Adbara, which is where this thing started now. And what really distinguished the Sudanese labor movement was the fact that uh, from the beginning, it was closely associated with radical leftist organizations, especially the Sudanese Communist Party, which was the second largest communist party in Africa after the South African Communist Party. And uh, I know you went to, uh, there's a question about the role of women. It was during that time, the 1940s, that you also have the rise of the women movement 
the which was also linked to the leftist organizations. Uh, the first uh, Sudanese uh, woman to be elected into parliament in 19, uh, late 1960s. So this is based on that tradition that uh, the I mean you have this uh, even the, the, I would say the current protest. So they have this rich experience uh, and in terms of mobilization, uh, rolling strikes, and, and so forth. Given this long democratic tradition among the Sudanese populace, how did Omar al-Bashir suppress these proclivities after 1989? What was life like in Sudan for the average citizen or, let's say, the political dissident? Okay, well, I mean, the regime came with an ideological project, basically what they call the cultural project and establishing an Islamic state. It started by purging the civil service, the army, the police, and all institutions that are considered, in their view, secular. And at the same time, it really established a reign of terror that never happened in modern Sudanese history. Uh, maybe in, you know, the, the only comparison may be Ethiopia under the Dirk, uh, uh, Mangestu Haile Mariam. So it started by severe repression, establishing what they call ghost houses where people were tortured, assassinations, murder, and so on. So the result is that uh, you have thousands of Sudanese who were who lost their jobs and they had to leave the country. So basically what happened, the most experienced people in terms of labor organization, trade union leaders, left the country. And the civil service, their army, was filled with uh, party loyalists, I mean Islamists. And actually that, that, that played a very important role in prolonging the life of, of, of this regime. Uh, the tactics were, it was this kind of, Either you're with us or you're against us. Tactic where if you're not a member of the Kazan, if you're not a member of the um, the Muslim Brotherhood and NIF, then you're not truly. For example, Islam plays a role, plays a significant role as far as northern politics is concerned, as I mentioned. But then, as Dr. Stinga mentioned, these taxes were like creating this kind of environment of, of fear as well. So you had, as you mentioned, those ghost houses and torture and uh, people spying on one another as well. So that was, it was, uh, became a very totalitarian, like autocratic, very totalitarian regime with Islam or Islamism as the, the driving force. Dr. Sirsay, when we were talking about the history of popular protest in Sudan, you mentioned that you had made the comparison at the time in Egypt to earlier popular protests in Sudan. Now we see that many commentators are describing the current situation in Sudan, along with the ongoing anti-government demonstrations in Algeria, as constituting a second Arab Spring. In your view, both of you, is it useful to compare what's happening in Sudan with the wave of revolutions that swept the Middle East and North Africa in 2010 and 2011? I think in, in my view, it resembles the Arab Spring in some way, but I think it's, this is really uniquely Sudanese in terms of the slogans, in terms of the organization, and uh, even in terms of the objectives of the of the uprising itself. The first major distinction, if you recall, the Arab Spring, in, for the most part, was supported by also Islamist movements. I think what is unique about the Sudanese case now, which is really lost to the international community, it, this is a movement that is represent a total rejection of the Islamist regime. There's no, I mean, perhaps beside Iran, there is no other country in that region that can be considered an Islamist regime. So this is a, a movement that is 
committed to completely eradicating any trace of this of, of the Islamist uh, regime, adopting very progressive uh, slogans. If you look at this, the slogans, for instance, uh, just fold. That's all. Uh, or the the I think the other slogan, freedom, peace, and justice, which really simple. And also, I think we are all there for what which which goes. Uh, you arrogant racist. We are all there for. So I think the content really reflects people are yearning for uh, something different. The question is, you know, uh, the many people are really pessimistic in terms of the um, the, uh, the the current military council that is trying to reproduce or mean, you know, remove the head of the regime, Bashir, and keep the regime intact. As we speak, actually, regional powers are also playing a very uh, dirt role. You have, you know, these camps, uh, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, uh, basically trying to prolong the, the or, or support the, the military regime. Uh, on the other hand, you have Qatar and Turkey, that acts also they're trying to support the Islamists. So regional politics is also playing a, uh, an important role in what is going on now. All right, so that, and there's also a major difference because, for example, in Sudan, unlike I follow Egypt, actually, mm. and the Egyptian revolution, the army in Egypt essentially is an army that is emancipated from society. So whereas the army in Sudan is not so there are members of the army in Sudan. I mean, it's not unified. That's what I meant. That's what I mean. For example, mm-hmm. the army in Egypt, there's not that much dissent within mm-hmm. the rank. Mm-hmm. Whereas the army in the Sudan, the junior officers were protecting the people, mm-hmm. right? And so there's dissent within the ranks. Mm-hmm. So not everyone is falling and step behind Bashir, even though, so for example, Ibn uh, Auf, he may be related to Bashir, mm-hmm. the one essentially called for the ouster of Bashir. So I think that's a major difference. And then another difference is, as we mentioned, a long history. The Arab Spring was something unique. The Western media latched onto it and then embraced it. But then they held at arm's length the history of Sudan, Sudanese uprisings as well. So Dr. Sakinga mentioned, this is uniquely Sudanese, actually. You have women participating as well. There, um, you have the iconic figure of Allah Salah mm-hmm. standing on, on top of the car, mm-hmm. singing and chanting revolutionary slogans, and she's become an icon. And this is not unique to the Sudan. Women have played a role in these in these uprisings. Whereas in Egypt, for example, if women participate in those uprisings in the protests in Tahrir Square, then they're going to be they would be harassed, removed as well. So this. Uprising in the Sudan, these protests in Sudan are uniquely Sudanese. Yeah, yeah, that's an important point, really. I think the role of the youth, who, and, and especially young women, because they really bore the brunt of the policies of this regime in terms of harassment, uh, you know, this, uh, what they call uh, public security order and so on, uh, who were harassing women for not. This. So they really bore the brunt. Um, and also the, the 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 other thing about the discipline of these protesters. I mean, you have almost a million people camping in front of the army headquarters for more than two weeks now, and not a single incidence of harassment or or, or looting or anything like that. So. Thank you so much for bringing up this issue of women in the protest, because mm. I think 
from an international viewer or maybe somebody who's not as aware of this history of female involvement, it is a bit startling and I think refreshing to see women in such prominent positions. The final question that I have about these current protests is we've talked about the regionalism of it and the fact that they're involving, um, you know, this question of we are all Darfur. Uh, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the international element is you've mentioned, Dr. Sakenga, the fact that many of the sort of professional class were forced to leave. And so I wondered if if there's an expat element to this or perhaps, Professor Cersei, you mentioned the regime's claims that the protests are being sort of controlled by Israel. So is there a sense that, you know, there's accusations being made about this being a foreign implementation or something done by expats? Well, the, the, the Sudanese diaspora definitely played a huge role in, in, in supporting these protests, in addition to people marching in different European capitals as well as in the U, different U.S. cities, as well as in the Gulf. They're, they're providing a lot of support, both uh, financially, politically, and so on. And um, most of these people are actually, many of them are technocrats, and the hope that if things go well, uh, these people will play a very vital role in the in, in, in the development of the country. And uh, I mean, you have the best experienced people in different fields who are now outside the country. Now, with regard to the, the, the international involvement, I think people took that uh, thing as a joke, you know, when, when it was talking about, you know, being supported by the, uh But as I said earlier, I think the biggest worry now is... Um, the regional players, especially UAE and Saudi Arabia, mainly because of the Sudanese uh, involvement in the war in Yemen. You know that most of the ground fighting in Yemen uh, are Sudanese uh, who were paid by Saudi Arabia. and uh, So the regional powers have a strong interest in addition to their investment in, in Sudan in terms of agriculture and so on. So that is uh, the biggest worry for, for the from the perspective of the protesters. But they're quite aware of, of what's going on. So even just yesterday, the uh, the protesters noted to Saudi Arabia and, and, and UAE, they said they issued an, an announcement that we don't need your money. Yeah. So we don't need your money. So keep your money. So what you said resonates concerning uh, regional actors that are, have an interest in prolonging the current regime's time and power, actually. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt as well. Young people are so disappointed when the African Union, uh, well, Sisi of Egypt called for this meeting of the African Union, and immediately they declared that, in, initially they gave the military council two weeks to transfer power to civilians. Now they extended it to 90 days, which is a huge disappointment to the protesters. Well, on that note, we'll wrap it up. Thank you to our two guests, Drs. Ahmed Kanga and Dr. Kim Searcy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nice hearing you. (laughs) Hopefully we'll see you soon. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. Uh, This episode of History Talk was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Institute, the Goldberg Center, and the History Department's at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are David Steigerwald, Stephen Kahn, and Nicholas Breifogel. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. And our audio producers and hosts are me, Lauren Henry, and Eric Michael Rhodes. Song and band information can be found on our website, and you can find our podcasts and more on origins.osu.edu, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, 
and wherever else you get your podcasts. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at OriginsOSU and at HistoryTalkPod. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. See you next month.